Genesis chapter 22. It says right here in verse 1 and 2, it says, Sometime later, God tested Abraham. And he said to Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah and sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain that I will show you. It's kind of interesting how we're just, where we are in our church body and our church life and individuals within the church, and here we come to, you know, the pinnacle of Abraham's faith is the testing of his faith. I just think God is so cool, that he is so faithful that when we are in need, we open his word and boom, he just wants to talk to our hearts. You know, whether it's our physical bodies, whether it's uh, finances in our personal lives or with the church or whatever, God is so faithful to meet us right where we are. And I'm just so comforted this morning, even by verse 1. And sometime later, God tested Abraham. Guess what that means? That God is a part of the testing. That he's in control of the circumstances. He knows what's going on. It's not like, oh my gosh, what's happening? It's out of control. What do I do? God is in the test. He's actually, in this case, he's the instigator of the test. And he goes to Abraham and he tells him, I want you to take your son. I want you to take your only son whom you love. Not an insignificant person. This is something very special in your life. And I want you to take him to a mountain that I'm going to show you some far off place you don't understand. And I want you to go and sacrifice him there. Not only sacrifice, I want you to kill your only son and I want you to make him a burnt offering to me. If that isn't a test, I don't know what is. As I read this, I'm like, God, you're crazy. No. My flesh. Anyone with me? God, this is not the way we deal with things. This is not how you get me to, to be a man of faith. This is not the way that I would do it. I have a much better idea. And here it is. Abraham is going to be tested by God in a significant way. As believers, God will bring us into times of testing. Peter speaks to a group of believers in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, and he says to them, he says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come to test you. Don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come to test you. Don't let it take you off guard. As though something strange were happening to you. What is this? This foreign invader that has come into my life. Don't be surprised. But rejoice in as much as you are participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Don't observe the testing that's happening in your lives by what you see simply out of your own eyes. There's something, there's a spiritual element to it, something beyond it. And he's talking to this church, the purpose of testing in our lives, in their lives, why God allows it is because God is allowing opportunity for us to unite with Christ. Unite with Christ. 
And in this case, for this church, in, in the suffering, they were being persecuted for their faith. And he said, don't think that this is something that uh, is mysteriously happening. God is allowing this to happen in your life. Hardship, suffering, physical pain, lack. Because he wants to bring out something deeper within us. Just like Jesus was not living for this world. He came to purchase those who would be a part of his kingdom. Something deeper. God is working out something deeper in Abraham's life than just him having a son that God chose, you know, that, that he promised. There's an issue in his life that needs to be resolved, and this is the pinnacle of it. Through testing, God reveals Christ in us. Christ in you. How else are you to know that he's in you except through trials and testing? Through contrast. If everything was hunky-dory, yay. But life is hard in many respects, difficult. Whether you're in the slums of India, India or you are in you know, the pinnacle of some place in uh, Western civilization, there are challenges that face, that face mankind. The church in China, underground, being persecuted ser- uh, severely, are praying for us because they see we've lost our fire in many respects. We've been overcome by materialism. Amazing stuff, perspective. It faces all mankind whether it's persecution physically or whether it's excess on the other end. You know what I mean? Lack of persecution and all the things in between there. Now, at the same time that God tests us, listen to this, at the same time God tests us, this also allows the enemy a window to tempt us. And these two work hand in hand while we're here on this earth. When God tests a person, the enemy will come in and try to tempt him. God does not tempt, God tests. The enemy tempts, he does not test. Polar opposites. God is allowing trials and temptations into our life to bring Christ out in us. The enemy is allowing uh, temptation to come in our, in, in our life to suppress Christ, to push him back so that we would reject God, reject his ways. And so, temptation to resist the cross, to walk according to our, our eyesight and not by faith, to deny the work of the Spirit in us. This is what the enemy would seek to do while we are being tested. Job, if you remember Job, graphic illustration of this. Job doesn't know the dialogue that's going on between heaven and, and Satan, between God and Satan, does he? Doesn't know anything just sees these things, everything's great, and then all of a sudden, difficult circumstances come along. But there's a dialogue going on between heaven and God. God's saying, Job's a righteous man. Satan says, well, let him, let him go this way, and he'll curse you to his face. And so there's this thing being played out in his life. Ultimately, Job says, though he slay me, though he slay me, man, I'm never gonna turn from the Lord. He's mine. That came out through testing and trial. Victory over temptation. 
God seeking to reveal the character of Christ in Job, who was a righteous man. The ultimate example, I think, was Jesus. Who led Jesus into the wilderness? What does it say? Did Satan lead Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted? The Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness, and then Satan tempted him. Interesting parallel how those things work. The ultimate example, Jesus Christ. And so God, he tests Abram. And the thing about God when he tests is that it requires faith and it requires obedience to pass. Not something we can muster up, not our own physical strength, but just trusting in him, obeying him, following, letting our actions follow our convictions. And this is because Anybody entering at a test, not all the variables nor the outcome, it's not very clear, is it? Boom. You hear you have cancer applicable in our body. The variables are not clear. The outcome is not clear from a physical perspective. Don't know. And we can navigate and we can live in this situation where we're responding and reacting to all these types of situations in our lives, whatever they might be, when the Lord's trying to supersede that and say, look to me, look to me, and I will guide you through those circumstances. God tests Abraham. And it's not, the situations aren't very clear. An example, take your son, your only son, Isaac. Abraham had two sons, didn't he? What's with that? Take your son, your only son, Isaac. Hey, wait, well, I thought I had two Isaacs. A little confusing there. But Isaac, the son of promise, God, he knew which one God was talking about. Ishmael, the child of the flesh. No, not that one. The one of promise. I want you to take that one. I love how God forgets our sins. Not that he didn't bless Ishmael. That's a different story. We'll go there some other day. But take your only son, whom you love, Isaac, to the region of Moriah. He loved Isaac. He loved Isaac. Testing often involves someone, something we love. It usually always does, right? You, oh gosh, you know, don't test me, Lord. I love me. Someone you love who is hurting. Difficulty, difficult situations in your life. Involves someone or something you love often. And God's holding to take him to the region of Moriah. Testing requires steps of faith. I want you to take him somewhere. I want you to do something with him. I want you to put your, this into action. For Abram, he was to take Isaac to the area of Moriah, which is modern-day Jerusalem. And sacrifice in there is a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. I want you to totally, I want this, this test, I want you, it to be totally consuming. I want to have all of you. All of what you're offering. Pretty crazy stuff. Jesus would test people. They'd come up to me, hey, I want to be your disciple. Well, first, go do this. Jesus would say, unless you hate your mother, brother, sister, you cannot be my disciple. What was he saying by that? Okay, well, I already hate all of them, so I'm good. No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying that you have to love me more than anything else on this earth. 
I want to go and I want to follow you. You know, I've kept the law. I've done all this stuff. Okay, well, go sell all your riches to the poor. And then come and follow me. And the young rich ruler went away very sad because he was very rich. The Lord brings us to that area, that one area in our life, it seems, that we hold on to above him, and he will ask us. He will test us in this area and say, do you trust me? Do you love me more than that? Bring it to me. Do you trust me? Scary area for all of us. Abraham is dealing with this area in his life, his son, the one he's waited for. And now, as we've seen, he said, take him to this mountain, I will show you, and, and offer him to me. And that word offer, it, it, sacrifice, is to lift him up. That's what that word means, to lift him up to me. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that in a bit. But take your son whom you love and bring him to a place I will show you and lift him up to me, offer him up to me. The type of offering was that burnt offering, that total consumption. Nothing left. And now, as we've seen, and as we'll be going through the life of Abraham, that Abraham, he was a, he was a fearful guy that God was fashioning in his heart. What God was fashioning in his heart, what? Faith. He was fashioning in his heart faith, trusting God. And if you remember, God had called this fearful guy out of his father's house back in Ur, back in Iraq, to, the, to begin that journey of faith. But it took the death of his father. He didn't respond right away. It took the death of his father to finally step out and follow the Lord and go to a place he didn't understand. That was years, friends. God said, hey, leave your father, leave your home, come and follow me. Didn't do it. Took a while took a while. His father finally passes away and he finally steps out. And the scriptures hint that he was fearful of being alone, fearful of, being, of, of these things, of the circumstances. He wanted to be under that protection and that covering. And God encouraged this man who was full of these emotions, these fears with promises. He encouraged him with promises. He said, uh, that he would have descendants like the stars in the sky and that they would inhabit the land that God would, had brought him to. I'm going to bring you to a land. And he did bring him to the land. He goes, guess what? In this land, I'm going to have your descendants like the stars of the sky. Check it out, Abraham. And they're going to go away for a while, but they're going to come back. And they're going to take over this land. And he's talking to a guy who's getting up in age and he doesn't have any kids. And he encouraged him with these promises. And Abraham and his wife, they sat on that promise for decades. And still, what happened? Nothing. They're just waiting. And every now and then the Lord would remind them of, a, of the truth. Just hold on. It's not time yet. I'm waiting until you can't do it in the strength of your own flesh is what he was waiting for. I was waiting until Sarah's womb was dead. I was waiting until you're old and you think it can't happen before. So you know that I will do what I say, that I am strong. They got older and they became impatient and they tried to bring about the promise of God by their own means. And Sarah had this idea, fearful that there wouldn't be a lineage, there wouldn't be someone to carry on the name, that all the inheritance would go, you know, to Eleazar, the servant. I said, hey, go ahead and take my servant. We got down to Egypt. 
Hagar and have a child through him. And Abraham said, okay, and gave in. They had Ishmael, this child of the flesh. And it came to a time when God reminded him of the promise, said, hey, I'm going to make my promise through Sarah, your wife. You guys are going to have a kid. And what did Abraham say? Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. May the thing that I brought about in my own strength, with my own ability, in my own ways, just bless that plan, God. And God said, no, I will take care of him. I will bless him because he's your son. I'm not going to be mean to him and all that stuff. But guess what? The child of promise is through your son that you're going to have through Sarah. And as we, led, as we read last week, Sarah was 90. Abraham was 100 years old when Sarah finally conceived. And she had a child with Abraham, and his name was Isaac. Laughter. The child of promise finally came after all this time of testing and trial. The miracle had happened all those years. The son of promise was in their hands. The promised baby. Finally, the coast is clear. God was done with Abraham. Woo! Now, sometime later, as we're reading, some think as many as maybe 30 years, could be just a, he could just be 12 or something. God tested Abraham. Take your son, your only son, the son of promise, the one you've been waiting for, all this drama had been leading up to it. Take him to the land of Moriah and offer him as a burnt offering on the mountain. I will show you. Why would God do that? Why would God suggest such a thing? When I was younger, I just, I could not get past this. I read that and I just go, man, that makes me uncertain about God. It makes me nervous about God that he would take something that I care so much and take it away from me after giving it to me. That's just cruel and mean. And I understand that fear. But at that time, not saying I'm, just God has graced me with a little bit more perspective as I've been reading and, and stuff, I mean, as we all do as we walk with the Lord. Um, I see a bigger plan. I see that he never intended for him to follow through with it in an action. He was working something in their hearts, something so deep and so profound, and he was painting a picture that we're going to read about here. My understanding of what God was doing was limited, and I'm sure Abraham's understanding of what God was doing was limited. But what amazes me was Abraham's response. How would you respond, friend? Verse 3, early the next morning, Abraham got up and he loaded his donkey. As we discussed in our worship series, Abraham immediately responded to this Lord. He had this thing with God that whenever God asked him to do something, no matter how difficult or trivial or whatever it is, he did it as soon as possible. As soon as possible. Boy, I like to procrastinate. I have tried all my life to study on like Tuesday, Wednesday, uh, Saturday night until 12 something. I'm like, okay, and this morning in my office, like, I know. Yes, I'm reading throughout the week, but I mean, goodness, man, I would like you to do this. Yeah, okay, that sounds great, Lord. However, it's not my priority today. I'll put it on my task list list, you know. He did it right away, early the next morning. 
He does it as soon as possible, and this reflects Abraham's art, and it reflects his relationship with God, his understanding of God. And he took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac, and when he had cut the wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place that God had told him about. Who cut the wood? Abraham. The guy's how old? Now, I don't know about you. I have an army of servants. Hey, go cut the wood for the sacrifice for me. You can't have others obey on your behalf. You can't have others worship on your behalf. No matter how old you get, no matter how much, you know, people you got running around you doing things, whatever it is, it's personal. And it's amazing in, in, in ministry, in, in marriage, in whatever area we are, we can delegate responsibilities that God is asking us personally to take hold of. Matt, go cut the wood. You take the time for the sacrifice, for the worship. You go prepare your heart. Be personally involved. We like to delegate those things, I tell you. Others can't obey for us. They can't worship for us. In verse 4, on the third day, Abraham looked up and he saw the place in the distance. Three days, very interesting number. And he said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. And we will worship. And then we will come back to you. Boy, circle that, underline that, star it, whatever you need to do. This is the first time the word worship is in the scriptures. And anytime a word that is used first time, it's significant about the meaning of that word. It kind of carries weight. You kind of always go back and go, oh, that's kind of what the, what the context is for the understanding of worship. And that word worship means to bow down, to humble yourself. Bow down in your, and to humble yourself. And in this case, worship is first mentioned in the context of Abraham offering his only son, whom he loved. The central theme of worship is around the sacrifice of an only son whom the father loved. We'll come back to this. But it says something else. What does it say? We're going to go and worship and we will, we will return. Not only is it on the sacrifice with the, fa- with the father sacrificing the son, but it's on the return. It's pretty interesting how the gospel's in the Old Testament. We'll get there. Verse 6, Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and he placed it on his son Isaac and he himself carried the fire and the knife. We see the father and the son both willingly going to the place of sacrifice. The son carrying the wood. The father, the fire and the knife. And as the two of them went on together, verse 7, Isaac spoke up. He said to his father Abraham, Father, yes, my son. Abraham replied, The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, son. And the two of them went on together. Dad, where's the lamb? Where's the sacrifice? God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. We'll get there. Verse 9, 
And when they reached the place God had told them about, Abraham built an altar. We see this in his life. And there he arranged the wood on it, and he bound his son Isaac, and he laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And then he reached out his hand, and he took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, said, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God, because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. So God tested Abraham here in in the ultimate test to sacrifice his only son. And Abraham, he responded immediately. He got up early the next morning. He got the wood. He began his three days journey and headed to the area until he saw the mountain. He walked up the mountain, fire and knife in hand, his son carrying the wood. He built the altar. He bound his only son whom he loved to the altar and was committed in his heart to sacrifice him just as the Lord had said. And just before the knife was about to go down, when he was, it was going to happen, the angel of the Lord, I believe none other than Jesus Christ, precarnate, calls out and says, hold it. Stop. Stop. Don't lay a hand. Don't do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God because you've not withheld from me your son, your only son. Now, did it take all this? Let me ask you, did it take all this for God to finally know what was going on in Abraham? Now I finally know. Oh my goodness. I'm so relieved, Abraham. When God says like, stuff like this, it's for our benefit. That's why he said in verse 1, God tested Abraham. And this is important to note. Tests are not for God. Tests are for us. Tests are not for God. They're for us. They are for us to reveal to us what is in our hearts. How many of you had a test lately? You come with a situation of fear in your life. What did it show you about yourself? What did it show you about your heart? What did it reveal? Reveals both the good and the bad, doesn't it? This test was the pinnacle of Abraham's walk of faith because it revealed something that he had been struggling with his whole life, fear. Abraham had been struggling his whole life with fear. Abraham's fear was misplaced up to this point. It was misplaced. Fear of leaving his dad's house and following God. Fear of dying. He would rather have his wife put in a harem twice than die. Fear of retaliation from the kings that surrounded him. God had to come from him and said, Fear not, I'm your shield. An exceedingly great reward. Fear of not having any children. What's my significance, God? Where's my lineage? I don't have any kids. Fear. 
giving in to Sarah's fear to have Ishmael through Hagar, and now God's asking him to take his worst fear, losing his son, the son that he had waited for, the son of promise, and to sacrifice him to the Lord. And the test revealed that Abraham actually does not give in to that fear. Friends, it was a three-day journey from the time God had told him all the way to the sacrifice moment. Three-day journey. And I speculate a lot of emotion going on, a lot of room for spiritual warfare. Don't do it. You don't need to do it. This isn't God. That's not happening. Again, that's my speculation. I can only imagine what was going on in the heart and the mind, and mind of Abraham. We do have some things that we'll talk about in a moment. Just give in, Abe. Don't do it. Hold on. But he follows through to the point where he where the knife was about to go down into Isaac. And what does the angel of the Lord do? Don't do it. For now I know that you fear God. You fear God. Because you have not withheld from me your only son. This action showed me where your alliance was. It showed you where your heart was. And Abraham had spent his life fearing, as we talked about. But God fashioned in him a heart that feared the Lord. And we got to talk about the fear of the Lord for a second, not because there's a misunderstanding. But the fear, he feared the Lord. That is to heed the Lord, to respect the Lord, to revere the Lord. And as we talk about this, quite often, hey, perfect love casts out all fear. Amen. But in 1 John chapter 4, he is talking about fear of judgment. Fear of judgment. I'm going to be judged by God. This is dealing with reverence. This is dealing with respect. This is dealing with, with submission. He had feared, he had put the place, Abraham had put the place of men above God. He put the place of other people and circumstances and kings and, and death above the fear of the Lord. He had respected these other things and God had worked out in his life and both these things, faith and fear, kind of working together. Fear misplaced is wrong. But now, God had brought him to the place where now he feared the Lord, even above losing his own son. I respect what you say above my own life, my own possessions, my only son. I respect you above all. I put the honor in that, in that place, and my life is going to reflect it. It says in Psalm 25, verse 12 through 14, Who then are those who fear the Lord? He will instruct them in the ways they should choose, they should go. They will spend their days in prosperity, and their descendants will inherit the land. I have no doubt David is thinking about Abraham in this. The Lord confides in those who fear him, and he makes his covenant known to them. And so God took this man who revered and respected men above God, as a default in his life, and he worked out the opposite. That he would trust and fear the Lord above men. But it wasn't just a proper fear of the Lord that, that was uh, revealed in this test and caused Abraham to follow through. It was faith in God's promise. And this is the big thing, faith in God's promise. Hebrews 11 uh, chapter, uh, chapter 11, verse 17 through 19, right? The hall of faith. It says, by faith, Abraham, when God tested him, he offered sacrifice, uh, he, I'm sorry, he offered as a sacrifice Isaac. 
And he who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, hey, it's through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. It's going to come through Isaac. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead so that in this manner of speaking, he did, not receive, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. In other words, he is looking at the circumstances. He's going, you know what? God said, he's telling me to go sacrifice my only son. And so he, he has to work it out in his mind and he goes, he falls back on what God said. And what does God say? He's just going, in his mind he goes, hey, I am going to have to kill this guy and God's just going to have to raise him up from the dead because God's word, he cannot go back on what he says. He'll just have to raise him up from the dead. Tell me that when we look at our lives and our circumstances, that we don't have to have, we've got to have hope in the resurrection. We've got to have hope in what God said, how it ends. When I hear, you know, my body's riddled with cancer, when I hear your body's riddled with cancer, what do I have to do? Boy, I look at the physical circumstances and I go, oh my goodness, that's horrible. But I have to look beyond that to the promises of God. And what does God say? Fear not, I've overcome the world. You're going to be with me. We're going to take care of this. And God will sometimes bring grace to people on this earth, and he does often, he does heal people, he does protect people, he does remove the sting of death even while we're here on the earth, so to speak. But ultimately, we are people who are looking towards the resurrection. God will just have to raise us up. And if we live with that mindset, if God is for us, who can be against us? That frees us up for a world of ministry. That frees us up for a world set before us that needs Jesus Christ. And we can walk in that in power and strength, not living recklessly. Jesus saw circumstances and he moved away from them at certain times. But we can look at people and go, you know what? what? What can happen to me? Why do we fear men that can hurt the body instead of fearing God who can do things with the soul, right, that, that God was talking about in, in the New Testament? Why, why, do we, why do we have that? Because that's our default. That's the way we look at life. And God is teaching us to flip that around and have eyes of faith. And that is what he did with Abraham. And this test revealed where his heart was. Hey, Abe, you trust me. I wasn't going to have you sacrifice your son. But I wanted to see where your heart was. I wanted you to know where I see your heart. And that's precious. And that's what he did through this test. And Abraham, he follows through in obedience. In this t- in First Peter, Abraham trusted God's ability to resurrect the dead, and so too was able to obey God in the hardest of situations—situations situations that I'm sure caused emotions to swell and doubts to flood Abraham's mar- his heart and his mind. But God had been molding him and shaping him into a man who feared the Lord, above the fear of man and death, a man of faith, trusting in God's promise even if it contradicted plain sight. And this is the same mindset in the heart that was in Christ Jesus. When he was going to the cross, he said, Father, if it can be, take this cup from me. The Father said, no. Your will above my will, Jesus said. 
nevertheless, your will above my will. In 1 Peter 2.23, it says, when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He entrusted himself to God. And this entire chapter amazes me, and it should amaze all of us, because it's about Abraham's willingness, yes it is, to offer his son obedience to God, but it's also, as you've been reading through here, it's a picture of the Father and the Son. Abraham is a type of the Father, our Heavenly Father in in Heaven. And Isaac is a type of the Son, Jesus Christ. And just as Isaac carried wood upon him to the mountain, Abraham brought the fire and the knife, so Jesus carried the cross of wood upon him to that same mountain, exact same place, 2,000 years later. And on that same spot, 2,000 years after, Abraham and Isaac, the father, and it's amazing, on that very same spot, on Mount Moriah, outside Jerusalem there, the father did not withhold the knife from his only son. He didn't withhold it. And all his only son, whom he loved. And he was sacrificed. That word sacrificed is offered, right? Lifted up. His son was lifted up. Jesus said in John chapter 3, 14, before we get to the 316, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, the son of man <clears throat> must be lifted up that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. The Israelites were in rebellion towards God. They had been complaining and murmuring until the Lord released a plague of snakes, great vipers upon them, and they all got bitten. And people were dying left and right. And so they cried out to Moses, and Moses cried out to the Lord and said, make a bronze serpent, which is an idol, very interesting thing. Make this serpent, put it on a pole, and lift it up and put it there. And anyone who looks upon that will be healed from their bites. And the analogy is, we've all been bitten by sin. And it is coursing through our veins and is taking effect. And death will have its day in our mortal bodies. And unless we look to the Son of God who became sin for us, that picture of the serpent, picture of sin, Unless we look to that sacrifice where God's wrath was poured out upon him, the effects will remain and we will go into an eternity of darkness apart from God. Jesus is the sacrifice that takes away the sins of the world. For without the shedding of blood, there is no taking away of sin. Isaac asked Abraham, he wears the lamb for the sacrifice. And Abraham replied, what did he say? God himself will provide a lamb for the sacrifice. When John the Baptist, when he came baptizing in the wilderness, you know, crazy guy out there, and, and the Pharisees came to him and said, hey, are you the Messiah? He said, no, but there's one coming after me who was before me an eternal guy whose sandal straps I'm not even worthy to undo. A servant's job. And guess what happened? A couple days later, the Messiah comes walking to be baptized by John to identify with us. And John says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. 
God will provide himself a lamb. Jesus is the lamb of God to take away our sins. Jesus is that sacrifice that took our place. It wasn't Isaac that was to die on that day. A ram would take his place. And that ram is symbolic. That lamb is symbolic of Jesus Christ. They look forward to it. We look back to it. Just as Jesus, he was the lamb that took our place. Verse 13 of Genesis 22. And Abraham looked up, and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. And he went over and took the ram, and he sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. Boy, that's a lot we could go into there. We won't. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide Jehovah Jireh. And to this day is said, on the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. And as I said, 2,000 years later, 2,000 years ago for us, the Lord provided Jesus Christ, his only son, on that exact spot. Pretty amazing, Calvary. He was crucified, a cross of wood. He was buried a little ways away. And yet, the boy and I will come back, it says. He rose again the third day. And now he's seated at the right hand of the Father and is coming again to judge the living and to judge the dead, to take his bride back. In verse 15, in closing, it says, The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said to him, I swear by myself, declares the Lord. The angel of the Lord is God. That because you have done this and have not withheld your son, you your, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, as the sand of the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies. I'm sorry, take possession of the cities of their enemies. And through your offspring, through your seed, all the nations will be blessed because you have obeyed me. And that word for offspring, seed, is singular. And that is speaking of the seed in Galatians chapter 3, the seed of Jesus Christ. He is in that lineage, and that's who he's speaking of prophetically. Ultimately, Jesus Christ is through whom all the nations will be blessed, both Jew and Gentile. Praise God. A bunch of Gentiles in here mostly, right? Thank you, Lord. And then, verse 19, a very interesting one. Leave you a little bit for next time, or actually for chapter 24. It says, Then Abraham returned to his servants, and they set off together for Beersheba, and Abraham stayed in Beersheba. We're going to get to the rest of the chapter next time. But what's up with that last verse? What's missing? In verse 19. That's kind of hard to see there. Then Abraham returned to his servants, and they set off. What's missing? Where's Isaac? Now, obviously, he went with him. That's what I presume, but I think the Holy Spirit does some fun stuff. And we'll, t- we'll, uh, we'll show you a little bit more about that when we get to 24, chapter 24, but Isaac is mysteriously missing for a little bit. Pretty fun. Lord, I want to thank you so much for your gospel, that your gospel's through the whole thing. Through the whole, here we are in the very beginning in Genesis in chapter 22, Lord, and a picture of your son, of what you did 
2,000 years before it happened, in the same very spot, even named the place, and in that place the Lord will provide. And it was in that place that you provided your son for us. Thank you so much, Lord. And God, if there's anyone here this morning who's been stung by sin and has not looked upon Jesus and who just feels the weight of it upon their soul, I pray that they would cry out to you this morning and say, God, save me. And Lord, you will because you said it. It doesn't make sense to us, but you've done it. Why do you love us, Lord? Why would you sacrifice your only son for us? We'll never know, Lord, that your love is perfect and it's profound. Thank you for buying us back with the precious blood of Jesus. Thank you for taking your wrath off of us and putting it upon him and giving us his life in return. Thank you so much. Thank you for the resurrection, Lord, that we look forward to this glorious hope that one day all these, this pain and suffering that we are navigating through now will be gone. Lord, help us to live with our eyes upon you, with upon the, on the promises of God, the truth of God. Help us to be more than conquerors, Lord. Help us to know that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Thank you so much, Father. I just am blown away by that verse, Lord, that talks about how while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly, but now that we're, we're yours, how much more will you take care of us? I mean, why would you die for us when we were far away and yet abandon us now that we're yours? That doesn't make sense, and that's what Paul's saying, that we're yours, and we're yours forever, and we thank you for the work you have done. We praise you, and I ask that your blessing would be upon this congregation. Lord, we lift up the people who are hurting this morning. We ask that you would heal, that your hand, your spirit would reach out and touch. There's nothing we can do in our own strength, but we pray for you and your will. Lift up Artie, Lord, this morning. Lift up Afton. We lift up the others this morning who are hurting in our body. And we pray that you give them the perspective. We thank you for the deliverance that you've been doing. Thank you for the miracles that you have done. Thank you for the relief you've given those who've been in trials. Praise you for little kids. In the name of Jesus, amen.